and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed. I'm your host, Richie Billing, and today I'm delighted to welcome back our history maestro, Aidan Matters, from the Fantastic Law Lodge podcast, who's joining me to chat about the Knights of the Middle Ages and this idea of chivalry that was supposed to keep them in check. But as we uh, we know, and as you can probably guess from uh, what we understand about human nature, uh, it didn't. And knights were, as well as sort of walking tanks on the battlefield, they also held a lot of power and sway in society. And we discussed the evolution of how that class emerged. And we'll also be continuously referring back to writing and giving you ideas that you can use in your own stories. Before we get into that chat, uh, just a quick reminder that if you haven't already done so, please follow or subscribe to the show. Episodes uh, every two weeks, so if you don't want to miss one, that's the thing to do. If you have a few seconds to spare, please consider leaving a quick and honest rating on Spotify. I think it's only available on the mobile app for some reason, so you do have to use that to, to leave a rating. If you know of anyone who might like this show, or if you're in a writing group that you, you think may appreciate what we discuss and what we cover, please share it with them, or even just a quick share on social media. These are the best ways of, of supporting the show, and the, the bigger the audience we get, the more episodes that we can do, and the better the content it will, will ultimately be. And if you'd like to continue your learning beyond this episode, uh, please do join our writing group. It's, it's becoming a thriving community uh, over on Discord and on Facebook. You can find lots of like-minded people, all enthusiastic and, and keen to learn and to improve. And one of the best ways of doing that is working together to, to read each other's stories and share feedback. So I can't recommend that more highly enough if you, you're keen to, to make big steps in improving your writing abilities. And we also have a Patreon page which has an absolute horde of fantasy writing related material. I've recently just uploaded uh, a bunch of content to do with world building. You can get access to my writing class on building fantasy worlds, plus a bunch of guides that I've, I've recently put together. And lastly, if you are interested in sponsoring an episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed, please do get in touch. If you've got a new fantasy book coming out, because if anything, fantasy writers are fantasy readers as well. Um, or if you're a publisher looking to um, promote a new um, submission calls, or if you're a literary agency, or if you've got an editing service, get in touch. I'm always happy to help. Now it's time to crack on with the show and to look at the walking tanks that were knights of the Middle Ages. And to help me do that, I'm delighted to welcome back Aidan Mattis from the brilliant Law Lodge podcast. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Aidan Matters from the Fantastic Law Lodge podcast. Aidan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. I'm uh, having a good, good evening so far. <laughs> <laughs> it's all going to go downhill from here. Uh, you know it. <laughs> you know how much I hate doing these, that's why I keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thrilled that you've uh, decided to come back because I've been reading a, a lot of historical fiction again lately, going a big historical fiction buzz. But... Usually when I read historical fiction, it's about the Greeks and the Romans. Mm-hmm. And this time it's about the uh, Middle Ages and the Hundred Years' War with France. And this 
there's a lot of uh, talk about knighthood and chivalry, and I think that knights are almost, especially it's just, I suppose towards the the end of the Middle Ages, they're sort of eponymous, aren't they, with that era? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. they're so popular, like loads of people writing asking about knights and um, and weapons and stuff like that. So I thought it'd be a great topic to uh, to have a chat with you about knighthood. Then it's I know it's something that developed over time. What can you tell us about it? So knighthood, as we know it today, is very much a high and later Middle Ages concept. Whereas the original knights were actually just, your, it was just a term for soldier, knecht, um, knecht, depending on which part of Germany you're from. But the term itself basically just was a, a term for a professional soldier. And then over time, as warfare changed and as uh, civilization redeveloped after the fall of Rome, it moved over into something more akin to what we recognize on TV. Uh, um, you know, the early medieval knights as we know them, and a lot of the time when people think early medieval, they're actually thinking 900s and, and the 10th century. That's not early medieval. That's, that's the middle of the period. <laughs> that's yeah. uh, getting into the high Middle Ages. Early medieval, you're looking at like 500, 600 AD, because medieval, of course, just is a term that means between. The medieval period is the period between the early modern period and the uh, the Roman imperial period, and yeah. so that's they, they would not have referred to themselves as medieval at all. What they would have been, you know, was was just their. You didn't even have nationalism yet, you know. Um, people didn't think of themselves in terms of all right. Well, I'm Aiden, and I'm from Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania's in the United States, so I'm a Pennsylvanian American. Nobody, obviously, nobody in the Middle Ages would think like that because Pennsylvania didn't exist. But, you know, you're, you're from what, uh, Liverpool? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, for you, you'd, if somebody asked where you were from, you wouldn't say England. You would say Liverpool. You might even get more specific than that, because back then the cities were a hell of a lot smaller. So if you lived yeah. in, a, in a hamlet, you know, 10 miles outside of the city, if somebody asked where you were from, you were going to say such and such hamlet. Um, yeah. That's why people didn't even really have surnames at the time. People had epithets more than they had anything, you know, because that, that, that wasn't, you know, John Wellesley, that was John from Hammershire or something like that. So the reason that all of these things develop, like the the feudal hierarchy, is the feudal system itself, because you have a very, very difficult period of time directly following the fall of the Roman Empire, where everything is chaos. And the main order, the main uh, manner in which wars were fought was that you would have a well-known or a wealthy or a powerful person who would gather a comitatus, which in, you know, for the American listeners, you would probably associate this most readily with posses from the old West. Yeah. Cowboys getting together to go and, and deliver some vigilante justice or to join a, uh, a local militia, something like that. And they would be under the command of a, uh, a some sort of leader. Uh, very much depended on location, what that leader was called. Sometimes it would be, um, you know, a, a jarl. Sometimes it would be a baron. It didn't really matter. Just depended on where you were. But the point was, you'd have a person, a singular person, who would lead twenty to fifty men, who would then be their their household guard. And that's kind of how warfare was fought. Immediately after the Roman period, of course, comitatus uh, comes from Rome, from Latin, and it, it is a term that generally kind of means group of men. So the early knights 
were those professional members of the comitatus that it was you had your your captain your leader and then everybody else in the group was another professional warrior those were your knights it just meant that your job was to be a soldier and then as the feudal system develops as we're no longer in the migratory period you know you get out of the 600s and you're starting to see the formation of kingdoms that we will today recognize. You're starting to see, obviously, England itself won't be another for another 300 years. France itself won't be for another 200 years. But yeah. you start to see that conglomeration, that coalescing of not nationalism yet, but at the very least, you're starting to recognize, all right, well, I am a member of this kingdom, not necessarily this nation. Yeah. But you were, you were a part of something more. And the, the reason for that was that you were looking at a, an economy that was moving from looting the spoils of Rome and fighting your neighbors in, back into industrial agriculturalism, into large-scale agriculture and craftsmen and trade guilds, stuff like that, around the 800s starts to regain status in society. You're no longer in those what, what are quickly, we're, we're very quickly abandoning the term dark ages. Yeah. But those dark ages, you know, 476 to like 779, if you're if you're going by Charlemagne, which is kind of how we do it, Charlemagne's kind of the beginning of the the rise of medieval Europe. Before that, it's this chaotic time where, you know, kingdoms are rising and falling each generation and trade is completely disrupted constantly and you've got all sorts of roving bands of uh, raiders and the Muslims are at the gates in Spain. Um, you know, all that. People forget that the Muslims did, the, the Moors in fact made it to, to tour in France. Like it wasn't, the, the Moorish advance was not stopping in southern Spain. It, yeah. There was a moment where Europe almost completely fell to Islam because if the Franks hadn't stopped them in 732, if Charles Martel had not dropped the hammer, they might have taken all of France, even Germany, and then you know, if they had France, they had a land route into Italy. Like the, yeah. the, the Middle Ages could have gone completely differently if it weren't for traditionally a guy named Roland. Who was mm -hmm. Roland? Roland was a knight. He was a very early knight. He was the leader of what was no longer quite a comitatus, but it was an organized group of soldiers fighting under one leader in the larger body of an entire army. Also, uh, for, for your European and English followers, I, I would say Beowulf is what you want to look at in terms of comitatus. Beowulf led a comitatus. His, his oh, group cool. was a comitatus. And by the same token, Roland did the same thing. And the, the story I'm referencing is, of course, the Song of Roland, for those who don't know. But what, they, what his story is, is he's the head of the rear guard, and he gave the army of Charles Martel long enough to reconvene, to you know, be prepared to fight, that they were able to defeat a, a Moorish uh, attack as they retreated out of, yeah. uh, out of Spain. And what you see is that's kind of the first story of chivalry. This yeah. guy you know, going into battle with pretty much the full awareness that he was going to die as were most of his men, but the chivalrous thing to do was to sacrifice yourself for the greater good of your army, of your people. This was, and this was not uncommon in Rome either. Rome, the Romans also had a similar tradition of you know, self-sacrifice to, you know, that, that was how you went into legend, was if you turned the battle around by gloriously leading your bodyguards into a charge against a weak point in the enemy line and turning the battle on its head. So it was, it's kind of the same thing, but for different reasons. They, it, it's no longer about living on in glory. It's about doing, 
the the chivalrous thing, the knightly thing, the Christian thing to do is to die in service of the the greater mission of uh, you know eternal salvation. That that was kind of what they were thinking here, but. Just because chivalry begins there doesn't mean it ends there. Obviously, it evolves. And when people think of chivalry today, they're thinking of, oh, well, you, you should hold the door open for women and you should, uh, you know, the men should always pay on the first date and stuff like that. They think of that as chivalrous. <laughs> and yeah, there were parts of the code of chivalry that, and of course, the code of chivalry varied from place to place, but the general idea of chivalry, there were parts that were about how you should treat other people and how you should, you know, be kind to the, the elderly and to women and defend the weak and stand up to the strong, always be morally upright, stuff like that. But for the most part, chivalry was how you dealt with each other in combat, you know? Yeah. It was for every rule about helping an old lady cross the road there was a rule about the logistics of how do you, you know, capture a knight and sell them for a ransom. Yeah. And so that's kind of the, the next evolution of it. As, as you get into the high medieval period out of the early middle ages is that knights go from being uh, just professional soldiers to a class of their own. And that's partially due to the feudal system because the feudal system needed an intermediary group. It needed a warrior class below the Lord to actually have any any meaning whatsoever because if the lord commanded a peasant militia a third as they might have done during the early medieval period what what was the lord actually doing the peasants were defending themselves he was just leading the army no they needed a class of professional warriors and that is what these comitatus uh structures these household guards that's what they turned into was professional warriors and how do you how, how do you sustain a professional warrior you either have to pay them in currency or you can give them land so now you've got actually two different classes of knights you've got your landed knights and you've got your just professional paid knights and of course eventually that paid knight level actually kind of becomes more like men at arms and all knights almost all knights are landed by by the end of the middle ages so in that period where things are beginning to change there's a very specific reason that it's changing as well And that is that medieval combat made a significant shift from shield walls with archers behind them to mounted knights. And there is, obviously this is a gradual process, but there is kind of a a flashpoint moment for it, which is that uh, at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, you had the two army styles fighting face-to-face. The French, or the Normans, landed with uh, mostly cavalry. That was the bulk of their army. That was their intention was we're going to take these guys in chain mail. And of course, uh, chain mail, you know, everybody likes to wear their chain mail to a Renaissance fair or look at the movies and the chain mail always goes <laughs> down, you know, at, at the very most, like midway down your thigh. No, they yeah. were wearing chain mail that actually hung down over their boots because they didn't intend to fight on foot. They intended yeah. to fight on horseback. And if they were on foot, uh, they, they were probably going to surrender because they weren't going to be able to move very well. Now, later on, <laughs> Later on, mail absolutely does change to allow knights to fight on foot. But the Normans were primarily either fighting for the French or fighting against other Norsemen. So they never really had a reason to worry about fighting on foot because they were always going to have more men and overpower everybody. And the only way you were ever going to end up in a situation where you were supposed to be fighting on foot was in defense of a castle or something like that. So at Hastings, you have the English shield wall with longbowmen behind it, 
which is the, the way the English fought wars. And then in front of, opposed to them, you had, you know, crossbows and, you know, some militia spears and primarily your, your actual fighting force, those heavy cavalry, those mounted knights. And yeah. a lot of people, you know, know about the Battle of Hastings. They know that King Harold was shot through the eye and that that kind of ended the battle and all of that. They don't really know, most people are not aware that Hastings was not a, sing, a single skirmish where the two battle lines met and the English king was killed and that was it. No, it was three battles. It was three skirmishes across the course of the day. The Normans actually lost the first two. They won the third one. And they did not win. It was not a, an overpowering victory either. And it's not like they killed Harold and the English just totally gave up. Uh, the English actually formed up in a shield wall for the third time at the edge of a cliff and then mm. stepped aside when the horses got there right. and you had a whole bunch of Norman knights who just went right over the cliff. So there's, you know, it's, it's not nearly the, the cut and dry battle. It seems to be, but by the end of it, what is for certain knights are a far more efficient single soldier than a, a you know, a guy with an ax and a shield wall. Yeah. Cause one night, you know, first of all, if their horse is armored, that's already a ton of force that's being projected into an enemy battle line. And then following that, you've got a guy who's got a lance and then at least one sword, possibly two swords and probably a mace because yeah. he can carry all that because he's on a horse. Whereas your average infantryman is going to maybe deal, he's going to always carry a spear almost exclusively. Almost every single infantryman who ever fought a battle in the Middle Ages started the battle with a spear. You know, you had it really was the higher, the upper class who were not carrying spears into battle as their primary weapon. But the primary weapon of your average infantryman was a spear. And then they might have a sword or an axe. They probably had a, a very, like a sax knife or something. But, you know, you just one guy could only carry one, maybe two weapons and a shield. A knight could carry three, four weapons, a shield, possibly a backup shield, a quiver of arrows to like, you know, drop off if if there's some reason to uh you know javelins they can carry all these different things so a, a knight is a much more versatile and efficient single soldier but it's also much more expensive and yeah. so that's why there's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario here you know did the feudal system result from knights or did knights result from the feudal system because the feudal system was absolutely beginning to rear its head but knights as we know them might not have needed to be mounted if they hadn't needed to be mounted would we have seen the vast feudal estates that we saw? Possibly not, because we might have been looking at a very different situation where uh, for the same amount of land that was required to feed and pay for one night, you could feed and pay for 10 infantrymen. So would we have ever seen you know, these, these massive feudal estates? Not necessarily. You might have seen something much more similar to the early medieval period when you'd have uh, you know, people leaving their farms to go fight in the fur or yeah. uh, kings paying out of their, their coffers for somebody to fight for them, just mercenaries. Yeah. Instead, because a, a, a knight on horseback, first of all, they're going to need a regular traveling horse. They're going to need at least one battle horse. Uh, they're probably going to need a horse for their squire. They're, they might even have horses for pages. So there's all these different things that, you know, a, a knight's going to be 20 times as expensive as your average infantryman. So you've got to have these large fuel estates. And, you know, when a knight is being dressed in heavy chain mail, carrying at least two weapons, they're carrying a shield, they have to get on their horse, they're, they're probably going to need help. And that's where squires come into it. And squires are kind of a, a cross between a servant 
and an apprentice, which yeah. I guess kind of is, is what apprentices are. And a lot of, you know, a, an easy way to think about this is very much the Jedi Order from Star Wars, something very familiar yeah. to people. And it, it is point for point, uh, you know, the, the knight system of, but they, they, you're a Jedi knight, you know, you can be a Jedi knight and also an apprentice at the same time. That's kind of correct. But, um, you know, a youngling would be a page. Uh, pages usually went into service around the age of seven. You did not have to be born into it. You could be born a commoner. You could be born a serf. And if your parents happen to be particularly wealthy serfs, which is a thing that existed, you know, some people just chose to stay in the serf class and have lots of money. Um, but yeah. usually what they would do with that money was send off their one of their children, usually their eldest child, if they had multiple, but they would send off their eldest child to go and be a page. And then uh, early in the teenage years, a page would be elevated to a squire around the time that, that puberty hit and they were you know, growing into the, the body of a man. And then by the time you're reaching like 19, 20, 21, that's when you're probably getting knighted because you're fully grown. You've been training for 14 years. You're good to yeah. go. You're good to get out in the battlefield. And those guys, those knights that have had 14 years of training before they even are knighted, that's who you're thinking about. That's who you're looking at in movies like The King and in Braveheart. You know, if you think about like the Battle of Bosworth Field and stuff like that, that's the, the knight that was there, which is a very, very far cry from the knights of the, the Beowulf era where it's basically just a professional soldier. You know, th that professional soldier never left the battlefield over time. You still had professional soldiers who fought on foot with a spear and a sword and a shield in chainmail or gambazins or something like that. You know, they, they were always around. They never left the battlefield, but they moved into a supporting role while that term of knight was elevated in stature in, in society. And eventually you, you came to knights who were, you know, late medieval knights were as powerful as high medieval lords. They all had land. They all had their own soldiers. They had their own men-at-arms. They had their own squires. So it, it's kind of this evolution of going from a regular common soldier up to what would have been power beyond the wildest dreams of a knight from the 600s for a knight yeah. in the 500s. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, what, and the reasoning is that the knight was the, the most incredibly powerful weapon of war that had ever been seen at that point. Yeah. You know, this was essentially a, they were, they were almost invincible because if you wanted to kill a knight, you had to, you know, blunt force trauma to the head or find a chink in their armor. You know, for the most part, knights didn't really die all that often. And the reason was because it was much easier to capture and ransom them than it was to kill them. To yeah. kill one, you'd have to, like, get him off of his horse, rip his armor off, and hack at him. You don't have time to do that in battle, and you got to assume that he's not able to get up and kill you, because if you're a common infantryman, you don't have that kind of armor or weapons training. You've got rudimentary training. You, you know how to use your sword and your spear, and you've got, you know, your, your armor on. A knight has been training since they were a literal child, uh, trains every day, several hours a day, these are people who their entire job was to wear 30-pound suits of armor and wave around 5 to 10-pound weapons all day. Like, yeah. they were a lot stronger than, than you uh, if you yeah. were an average guy. You know, these are, these are people who would make modern American football players look wimpy. 
Um, and if you look at if you go and you look at suits of armor from the late medieval period, they're they're big, like like these were big people and not fat and people. Layered as well because you've got your gambesons, you've got your yeah. chain, and then you've got your plate. So it's like so much to wear. <laughs> it would be so hard, like even even with current weapons, it would be really hard for your average soldier to to kill a knight because there's yeah I, I mean if you think about like what uh what weapons are used today in the military a knight wearing full plate armor chainmail and then leather or linen padding under it that's that could stop a bullet yeah like that could stop a the, the ammunition that nato uses probably would not pierce a knight's armor yeah. at least not the first time um, the concussive force would definitely suck, but it would not pierce it and kill you. Um, it would, it would definitely cause some bruising, but, yeah. uh, you know, that was one thing they used to do in the, the 1500s, 1600s, uh, up into the 1700s before they finally began to abandon, you know, armor, full plates of armor, you know, by the, by the 1800s, you've got cuirassers who have, you know, just their chests covered, but Early in the Middle Ages, they would fire pistols, they would fire muskets, uh, arquebuses at suits of armor to show that it could withstand it, because yeah. it could. You know, and that's not, that's not a, you know, a lot of people in the United States, I don't know how much uh, your average British person um, you know, knows about guns, but in the U.S. it's a lot more common. And even here, people don't understand you know, how, how different the firepower is. Uh, you know, they'll call it an AR-15, a high-powered rifle, but it's a two two three caliber that's about a quarter of an inch in diameter. Yeah. Uh, musket balls, the ones being used in the Revolutionary War, at least, were 60 caliber, which means they were three times as big and far less likely to pierce. It was probably going to be like a small cannonball ripping through your body. So... The, yeah. the, the firearms of the time had to go a long way. If you think about that, they did not actually fully abandon the cuirass until like, like the early 1800s. That tells you exactly how effective these warriors were on the field of yeah. battle in the Middle Ages. There was yeah. nothing that could take down an armored knight easily. It yeah. was going to be a chore every single time. And that is why they fought each other you know, if you look at their, their equipment, the armor they were wearing, the weapons they were using, a knight going into battle against uh, primarily a peasant force probably would bring a sword, a shield, their armor, that stuff. But a knight going into battle against other knights was probably going to bring along axes, maces, uh, mauls, warhammers, so that they can actually get in there and cause the kind of trauma that is required to kill a man who is wearing 30 pounds of steel. Yeah, it reminds me way way describing it. Like I've I've recently been reading a book by Christian Cameron called The Ill Made Knight, and it's about knights during the Hundred Years War with France. And there's a, a really good scene, a battle scene involving Geoffrey de Charny. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, because he was a really famous knight, wasn't he? And it it showed his death, and there was about eight people on top of him. Mm-hmm. Like stabbing them through gaps and mm-hmm. hacking away, and I'm like, and if that's what it takes, it's like a chance to take down a walking tank, isn't it? it it's literally like th- that's that's the comparison. They were the tanks of the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. I, 
know, the U.S. at least uses the uh, the M1 Abrams tank today. Yeah. I think we lost two of them in Iraq. One of them got stuck in a ditch, and the <laughs> other got stuck in the ditch trying to get the other one out of the ditch. <laughs> there was uh, the battle of, I think it's like 73 Easton, I think is the name of the battle. Uh, nine U.S. M1 Abrams tanks against like 40 Iraqi, well, they were, they were Russian-built tanks, but 40 Iraqi tanks. And the U.S. did not lose a single tank in that battle. That, that's what we're looking at in terms of knights. Was like One of my favorite examples is there's an episode, I can't remember any of the details other than this, there's an episode during the Crusades where a group of 50 Templar knights routes about 3,000 Saracen cavalry because they just yeah. could not find a way to kill these guys. They were, used to, they were used to fighting the Byzantines, who you know had armor and professional armies, but not like this. And what they were finding was they're going into battle with thousands of them, and they can't even kill the horses. Because like, <laughs> yeah. their, their bows were so weak. You're looking at like 30-pound drawweight bows. And these are knights whose armor is built to withstand crossbows and you longbows. Like, you know, at the very least, 60 pounds of force. So the, the, the weapons that the Saracens were using during the Crusades were half as powerful as they needed to be to have any effect against these guys. So the Crusaders very quickly figured out, we can just charge right at them. And there's yeah. nothing they can do about it because they can't pierce our armor. Yeah. It's the exact same thing as the modern NATO tank tactics. They can't yeah. pierce our armor, so we're just going to go right for it. <laughs> and this, this power then, it's quite, it's quite incredible, isn't it, that they had, they, basically they're invincible. Mm-hmm. And one thing that became clear to me reading this uh this book is that the power went to people's heads and you got groups of of knights so they would just go around and just rape pillage take what they wanted and, and no one can really stop them and um, yeah that was part of the problem <laughs> yeah so knights obviously the pretty much invincible and there wasn't much to stop them from basically doing what they want. So I know there's a lot of, well, we've spoken a lot about chivalry and there was a lot of books written about chivalry and the way knights should behave. And uh, the question yeah. I wanted to ask you is how many knights actually paid attention to this? <laughs> I mean, it would really depend. And I think, you know, you kind of, you kind of were hitting the nail on the head uh, just a second ago because the, the fact of the matter is, you know, there was a structure to this. There was a hierarchy. The king, of course, had lords under him and knights under those lords, and those knights sometimes had knights under themselves. If your king was very hands-on and morally upright and you know, genuinely concerned about things, then he was probably going to pass that down onto the lords, and the lords would then pass that down onto the knights. But if you had a king who didn't care, you know, there was going to be a lot less organization top-down. And so when you had kings that did care and lords that didn't, they probably wouldn't like that. It's very difficult to operate on the, the, the diplomatic level with other countries when your knights are known for you know, raping and pillaging the countryside. That's not going to fly with other leaders. Yeah. So if you were a king, you wanted your knights to uphold chivalry if you cared about your reputation with other kingdoms. Uh, if you didn't care about that, then you probably weren't going to force them to uphold it as well, and you were going to get knights who didn't really care as much. But yeah, it was that kind of thing where I couldn't, I couldn't give you a number off the top of my head, but 
you know, if a knight was fighting in a royal army, they were probably a bit more on the chivalrous side. If they were a hedge knight, they might care a lot less. And if you're looking at rogue groups of knights riding around and, you know, pillaging and acting as bandits and all that, you know, they obviously didn't care at all. But you also didn't see a ton of truly heavily trained knights that went outlaw. Most of the time, if a knight went the outlaw route, it was either because they were forced to or, uh, you know, some sort of disillusionment or they got stranded somewhere. And they would probably collect a group of, you know, bandits uh, and, and common, common criminals to help them out. And they might, you know, teach them how to behave like knights and pretend to be knights and would train them. But you're never going to have those people weren't going to be like true, true knights uh, in terms of their their training and their status. Yeah. So I, I'd say for the for the most part, the actual rules of war were followed pretty well because when they aren't, it's a big deal in history. When we read documents and there's a time when uh, when something when a, a king or a knight or someone executes prisoners, it's it's a big deal. So yeah. by by that we can infer that it was it was likely that people were for the most part following the majority of the rules that they were supposed to follow. And then, you know, I, I think the best way to put this is, like, if you look at um, the Third Crusade, there's an episode where uh, King Richard executes a whole bunch of hostages. Uh, he's like, you know, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think it was that he was under siege, and the Saracens were outside, and he said if the Saracens did not break and leave by 3 p.m., uh, he would execute all of their hostages that he had within the city walls. And then the Saracens weren't gone at 3, 3 p.m., so he executed them right, right outside under the walls. Um, yeah. And it's like this big deal. Because King Richard is, you know, he's a, not a saint, but he's, he's up there. He's like, he's a paragon of, of leadership. He's yeah. known as a virtuous man. And, and so for him to do that kind of shocks people. For this even to happen shocks people. And the fact that we're getting writing about it in the context of the Saracens like these are people who to the crusaders were the enemy they did not consider them on the same level they were, you know these these were muslims these were, these were infidels so the fact that it gets brought up like that leads leads me to believe that this was not a super common thing uh we also get the story from uh, amalric who is the bishop of he's, he's a french bishop i think it's 1209 ad if i remember the date correctly the siege of yeah, the Massacre of Betsier. Uh, it is Amalric who is in charge. He was the abbot of Citeaux. He was a papal legate, Arnaud Amalric, and they conquered the city. This was during the Albigensian Crusade. And there's this moment where, and this is his letter, his letter to the Pope. He writes, indeed, because there is no strength, nor is there cunning against God. While discussions were still going on with the barons about the release of those in the city who were deemed to be Catholics, the servants and other persons of low rank and unarmed attacked the city without waiting for orders from their leaders. To our amazement, crying arms to arms, within the space of two or three hours, they crossed the ditches and the walls, and Petit was taken. Our men spared no one, irrespective of rank, sex, or age, and put the sword to almost 20,000 people. After this great slaughter, the whole city was despoiled and burnt as divine vengeance miraculously raged against it. Now, there's another account from Cesarius of Hesterbach, who writes, when they discovered from the admissions of some of them that there were Catholics mingled with the heretics, they said to the abbot, sir, what shall we do? For we cannot distinguish between faithful and heretics. The abbot, like many others, was afraid that many in fear of death would pretend to be Catholics and after their departure would return to their heresy and is said to have replied, uh, I can't read this because it's Latin, but mm -hmm. um, 
he is said to have replied, kill them all, God will know his own. <laughs> this is not... Th- this is another one of those instances where, like, Every medievalist is going to know about that quote. Everyone who, like, this is what, what they do for a living is going to know about that quote. Yeah. There aren't that many quotes like that. So the fact that, like, when this does happen, it is a big deal leads yeah. me to believe that, yeah, we're, we're looking at a situation where, for the most part, people were, in fact, following the, the code of chivalry and not executing prisoners and uh, not, you know... Um, pillaging and, and raping without any uh, you know any any idea of right or wrong that's off, that's very much a Victorian idea that was imposed onto the Middle Ages was that medieval people were savages uh, in reality you know yeah you, you would be pillaging something now and then there were basically two different kinds of, of war I mean there were a number of different kinds of war but you had the you know the two people kind of know best are wars of conquest in which case you didn't want to pillage things. Because yeah. then you were just left with a bunch of useless junk. And then there were wars like much of the Hundred Years War, where it was a war of attrition because what you were trying to get was you wanted, at the, the higher level, you had targets. You wanted you know this county and this duchy to be part of your kingdom, part of England. And the French wanted to keep their stuff. The French wanted Aquitaine, uh, and the English wanted to keep Aquitaine. And so you had these wars of attrition where you're going in and you are burning things and raising things and killing people and, uh, you know, not taking slaves, obviously, because that was illegal in medieval Europe. But in many ways, there's a lot of, like, you know, just carnage and stuff. And the reason that that happens is the kings at that level. You know, King of England is saying, well, if you won't give me this stuff, I'm going to raise all of Normandy. And the French king is saying, well, if you don't leave Normandy alone, I'm going to raise all of Aquitaine. Because it's, a, it's so high level for them that yeah. it doesn't matter. You know, that's, this is not, it, the, for the English, they didn't care about Normandy. They wanted Aquitaine. So they were fine raising Normandy and Burgundy. That didn't matter to them. Whereas for the French, they would be fine raising Aquitaine. But if the English conquered Normandy and they wanted it back... They wouldn't have gone in and destroyed everything. They would have, it would have been line battles where you're fighting against each other, which is kind of why I laugh when there's, you know, like raiding mechanics in video games today, because that's not how it worked. Like you weren't, <laughs> you weren't raiding to cause slight economic discomfort. You were raiding to get a diplomatic solution. So a lot of video games like the Total War series, if you raid someone's territory, it actually decreases their opinion of you and makes it harder to get what you want. It should decrease their opinion of you, but it should also put the put their feet to the fire because um, that was the actual goal of a war like that was cause so much pain and discomfort and suffering that the the king has to capitulate. Yeah. Such a brutal time. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's um, it's it's so interesting because knights that there's we, when we think about chivalry and stuff like that, and we look at the the reality it, the contradictions are there aren't they and it's oh yeah 100 it's a it's a really interesting look at human nature i suppose isn't it when you it, and i don't think anything's changed really it's just different forms like when people have got this power that, mm-hmm. that, that sort of law of power and the things that they do to uh take what they wanted it's just it's amazing really how nothing's changed but it's just the, the manner in which 
things yeah. are achieved. <laughs> yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's fantastic. That was a uh, fantastic insight to, to the development of Knights and what it was like to be a Knight. Uh, and I hope everyone out there listening has, has learned something new and that you can use in your stories. Aiden, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with us. How can we find out a bit more about The Law Lodge and, and your own writing? Yeah, so uh, The Lore Lodge is is just that. It's on YouTube, Patreon, and uh, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm expanding how many places you can find The Lore Lodge brand. Uh, you can also find me at The Aiden Mattis on most things. And yeah, uh, in terms of my writing, the best place to get that is Patreon, which everything's accessible for a dollar a month. And that comes with um, a, a bunch of short stories and uh, serials and stuff like that that I'm working on. And I'm trying to go full-time soon. Nice. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be looking at a situation where I'm posting uh, stories at least once a week, if not more, to that. Um, but again, in order to get to that point, I do need the support. <laughs> yeah, please. But yeah, head you can over find me in all those places. Yeah, please head over and check it out. It's, uh, like you say, Aiden, I think everyone appreciates uh, how knowledgeable and um, like professional as well like it, it is like speaking to like a, a professor at college sometimes like you, you that is know like, so much <laughs> that is the best compliment anyone has ever given me <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah and I, I, from the feedback i've got people really do appreciate everything that you uh you share with us so thank you very much oh. well thank you so much no problem um yeah we'll be back soon with more talk uh about uh, medieval life and maybe even earlier looking at sort of roman and ancient ancient greeks as well maybe yeah. uh, in future episodes but yeah thank you very much aiden and i will speak to everyone soon thank you aiden for once again for sharing all that wisdom it's it's phenomenal how much you know about history uh, particularly medieval history and uh, everyone listening at home i hope you've learned something new from aiden's many mini lectures on all these different facets of life in the middle ages which as we all know as fantasy lovers it's that period of time plays such a big role when it comes to the settings of fantasy stories and that basically if we, we are going down that route then all these episodes are designed to help with your world building in particular and to give you ideas inspiration and knowledge so that you can write with confidence and in compelling ways that your readers are going to absolutely love We'll be back on the 28th of August with sociologist Dr. N. Beck, who is returning to the toolshed to chat about sociology again. But this time, we're sort of expanding upon what we discussed in the previous episode about the psychology of heroes and villains. And we're, we're looking at the sociological considerations now behind those two characters in particular, but mostly villains. So it it was absolutely fantastic chatting with N about this subject so be sure to follow or subscribe if you don't want to miss it if you've enjoyed this episode please consider leaving us a quick rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes or whatever you listen to the show on if you know of anyone you think may benefit from what we discussed then, then please share it with them and also a quick share on social media it just helps us so much in in getting the word out to a whole new audience so so if you want to support what we do the share is the, the quickest and easiest way you can and also one of the most significant ways that you can help us why not join our writing group we meet on discord and facebook and if you'd like to to get involved the links are in the description 
You can also check out our Patreon page. I've recently uploaded a horde of world building resources, including loads of guides and my writing class, which is usually about £25 to buy access to. And if you if you head over to Patreon, you can get access for a hell of a lot cheaper than that. And lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode, if you're a publisher, a, a literary agency or an editing service, or if you, if you just want to tell us all about your, your new book and to get it out there to some fantasy lovers, then get in touch on the fantasy writers toolshed at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, I hope you've learned something new. I like to say we're back on the 28th. And until then, keep on scribbling. Scribbling.